Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. Like I said, we've been talking about looking at Colossians 3, so just to remind you guys, or for those of you who haven't been here, um, up, leading up to Colossians 3, Paul's been talking about the fact that we're new creations, we're new natures, that we've been made new uh, through the gospel. He's been talking about some very large things that happened with the gospel. The forgiveness of sins, the, the removing of the debt, the removing of the, the condemnation against us, and along the way he talks about the fact that we've been made new. We are new creations. We're not one, we're not fighting against ourselves, a good, a good self and a bad self, but we've been made new. But he does talk about the fact that what we wear, sort of our clothing, the way we reflect ourselves, doesn't always reflect that new nature. And so he, he's been talking about what it should look like. Not that we pretend to be this, but we begin to recognize it's who we are. Paul says elsewhere, he says in Romans, he says, stop pretending that you're like the world. Stop conforming to the world and instead reveal who you truly are. And so what he's asking us to do is not to, not to pretend to be something we're not. We can't survive that. Um, but instead to recognize who Christ has made us. And so he talked about it in terms of clothing, what we should wear. So last, uh, before Easter, we took a little, little break from Colossians for Easter, but a few weeks ago, um, we talked about how um, Paul was describing what we should wear, what should reflect the true nature of who we are. Um, it's as if we're princes and princesses of the universe, and yet we're dressing like paupers and peasants. And so he says, put off anger, put off bitterness, put off these things that don't reflect your true nature anymore, and instead put on things like kindness and gentleness and patience. He actually spends a fair amount of time talking about things like forgiveness and bearing with one another. Um, and it's interesting to me that even among a bunch of uh, newly uh, redeemed people, he still recognizes there's a need to bear with each other. And the term to bear with one another wouldn't be necessary if sometimes uh, you guys weren't unbearable. Um, me too. Um, and so that's what he's been talking about. And so tonight, in Colossians 3, 15 through 17, he's going to drop in a couple more things, a couple more items that are kind of like those clothing, things that we should do. And so he begins verse 15 by giving us two more important traits for the believer, and he says this. He says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Now, the first thing is he's talking about peace, and I think given that he's been talking about bearing with one another, and forgiving one another, and be patient with one another, that he talks about being members of one body. I don't think he's talking here, although there's a, there's, there's a place for this in Scripture, I don't think at this point he's talking about sort of that feeling of peace. I don't think he's talking about sort of that calmness. That's a good thing, that's not what he's talking about here. I think here he's actually talking about peace among the members, peace with other people, that, that we should be peaceable with each other, not stirring up division. But I love the way that he says, let the peace of Christ rule. He doesn't just say, be people who like peace or make a little effort to give some peace or try to, try to be a peacemaker. He says, let that rule you. He says, because you are called to peace. So think about it. In a sense, he's saying everything we've been talking about the gospel in the first few chapters here of Colossians is that Jesus died. Jesus gave up everything, became a man, died on the cross in order to reconcile you to God and to each other. It's interesting that Paul spends a lot of time talking about how in the gospel we're not only reconciled to God, but he also talks about how the church is this amazing body which brings Gentiles and Jews together. And it's easy for us to miss how significant that is. So think of, if you, you guys have all been around long enough to know what racial tension is. 
You've all been around long enough to know that racism exists. And think about whatever the analog is, whatever the comparison is for you, whatever the, the deepest sort of racial conflicts that you've seen or experienced, and understand that what was happening between Gentiles and Jews was nothing less than that. And so when the church became comprised of Jews and Gentiles together, that was part of the miracle of the gospel. And Paul points that out. He says this is part of the mystery. This is part of what's amazing. And so here he says Jesus died in order to bring that peace. So therefore, since Jesus is your ruler, since he is your king, let that peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let will be the ruler. The word ruler here is actually, the, the Greek word is arbitrate or mediate. And I think the idea is this. When you have a decision to make, when you're encountering a, a, a tense situation, when you're involved in relationships within the church, and you're talking to each other and there's a decision to make about what you're going to do and how you're going to respond to this person, he says, let peace be the arbiter. In other words, is a way you're going to respond going to bring more peace or less peace? Is the way you're going to respond going to disrupt things in the peace of the, of the, of the community? Or is it going to uh, help the peace of the community. And I think this is important, and I think particularly in our day and age, we, we really, we, we've come to scorn peacemakers quite a bit. And I know where some of our heads are already going. I know some of you are saying, but it is possible to avoid conflict so much that you don't do things you should do. And that's true, but let me explain to you why that is not keeping the peace either. So, when you come to that decision where you have conflict with someone and you have a choice how am I going to resolve this? How am I going to move forward? You let peace be the arbiter. So you ask yourself, in this conflict, what's going to bring the most peace to the community? And if you decide that I'm just not going to address it, I'm not going to deal with the conflict that's there, and that means that you continue to harbor bitterness and envy and grudge and anger in your heart, that's not keeping peace either. That is keeping an appearance of peace in the community, but there's no real peace there. Likewise, if somebody has something against you and you make no effort to resolve that and reconcile, then there again, you may be preserving a, a perspective, an appearance of peace, but you're not actually letting peace rule in your hearts. Paul says elsewhere, he says also in Romans, he says, as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all people. Now, I love the fact that Paul's very practical. He understands it's not always up to you, right? You cannot make all people be at peace with you. They have their own obligation to that as well. But he says, as far as it depends upon you, whenever possible, he actually has two caveats. When it's possible, and if it depends on you, be at peace with all people. And I think that means resolving conflict, reconciling. Christ was ready to die, to, was willing to die to reconcile us. We should do no less. But it also means sometimes, you just let it go. Sometimes, if you can be at peace with it, you let it go. You don't have to bring up everything. So the point, though, is in either case, the question is, what will keep us united? What will keep us reconciled? What will keep us in peace? Um, and that becomes the question. And it shouldn't just be a thing, it should be the rule. Right? It should be the thing that guards us as we, as we work together with each other. And why? He says, because we're members of one body. If your hand is fighting against your other hand, or your knee is fighting against your forehead, or if your knee is ever fighting against your forehead, it hurts. If, if those things have ever happened, it, it doesn't work very well. The body has to flow together. It has to work together. And he says, we are one body. We've been reconciled by Christ. So let peace of Christ rule in your hearts. But then he says this. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And then he says this. And be thankful. Be thankful. I actually think gratitude is a 
It's a lost art. I think it's something that we don't even value the way we used to. Uh, if you think about it, I think even in the culture, among a lot of the people that are heroes, sometimes we see gratitude as weakness, or we see it as, as uh, sometimes even unjust. And he says, be grateful, be thankful. I think as Christians, we, we need to get back to this. We need to understand we have a God who promises us that he's in control. He promises us that he will do anything for us. He promises us that he's gone to the ends of the earth and back to redeem us. There's a, there's a place for gratitude in that. Now, I think what's interesting is it's very difficult to not be at peace and be grateful at the same time. In other words, I think it's very hard to have a grateful heart and also have a bitter heart. It's very hard to have a grateful heart and also have an angry heart. And so I think if we are being thankful, if we are being grateful, if we're really recognizing what an important message that is for us today, if we can step back, be grateful for the community, for the connection, for the intimacy, for the value that you have in your relationships, it's just very hard to be grateful and complain at the same time. Think about social media for a second. I, you may not want to, but think about social media for a second. How often are the things you see posted gratitude and how often are they grievances? There's so often grievances. There's so often offenses. There's so often things that have, have made people just unhappy and they're using social media that kind of blast it out there. It's not very often that someone is posting gratitude on social media. I think it's a response of our culture. I think it's a sign of, of where we are and who we are. So I think just these two really simple things that he says here would transform what this community looks like. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, and he says, and be thankful. And if we are a community of peace and thankfulness, I can only imagine what people who, who come in contact with us in our groups would think. I think they would think it was a pretty cool place to be. I think they would think it was, it was really kind of an awesome thing. But how do you do that? Right? Flipping a switch to become grateful doesn't work. I can say to you, go be grateful. By the way, guilt doesn't work either. That whole thing, think about what Jesus did for you, how much pain he suffered, let me paint for you in great detail, the graphic nature of the terrible pain that Jesus felt on the cross, that rarely produces gratitude. Because guilt and gratitude aren't the same thing at all either, by the way. They tend to be at odds also. So what is it? What is it that helps us develop a grateful and peace-loving heart? And I think that Paul tells us that as well. It says this, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. That is a mouthful. There's a lot to that sentence. Let's break it down a second. First thing he says is, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. Now that you is plural. He's speaking to the community. So he says, As a community, Colossians, as a church, as a group of people, let the message of Christ, the gospel of Christ, the grace of Jesus... Let that message dwell among you richly. Don't just let it visit now and then. Don't treat it like a guest in your house. Let it live in your house. And let it do so richly. Think about that idea of what message dwells in you richly. Think about churches for a moment. Because a lot of times, I think when you walk into a church, within the first few minutes, you can often tell what message dwells in that church richly. The message might be a political one. You need to have these political ideologies. Uh, maybe it's master nomads. It seems like some churches, that's all they're based on. You know, maybe it's what they're against. Maybe the message that dwells in them richly is all the things that they're opposed to. Maybe the message that dwells in them richly is, is elitism. I think there's so many things that you don't have to hang out long in a, in, a, in a community to know what the message is that dwells richly because it dwells richly. Because that's what they're about. And Paul says what should be our message 
what should dwell in us, not simply be what we speak, but what should dwell in us richly is the message of Christ. People should be in our community for not very long, and that should be what they know. The grace, the gospel, the love, the acceptance, the message of Christ. And then he says this, as you teach and admonish. Now, it's interesting to me that a lot of times, and certainly in churches that I've grown up in my background, we would jump to the teach and admonish. Because we understand there's a lot of things people do wrong. And so we want to correct people, and we want to be corrected, and sometimes the heart is in the right place. But watch what happens if you skip the first part of that sentence and jump to the teach and admonish. What if he simply says, make sure that you teach and admonish one another? Well, there's always things to correct each other for, always. But can you see what the difference it makes if before you teach and admonish, the message of Christ is dwelling in you originally? It's going to change the very tone and flavor and, and tenor of your teaching and admonishing. It's not going to be critical spirit. It's not going to be harsh. It's not going to be burdensome. It's not going to be guilt-inducing. Somehow the teaching and admonishing is going to come from the message of the gospel of grace. What, what a difference that is. And to show you that when he says teaching and admonishing, he's thinking something different than we often do. It's that word admonish that gets us, because admonish is like correct. It's like rebuke. And I think in a lot of churches, for far too long, you know, accountability has, has, has been the buzzword to excuse actual just rudeness and control. But here he says, teach and admonish, but it should come from the message of grace richly, but this is what it should look like. All wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Here's what I love about this, right? I... It's, it's hard to think about what it really means to teach and admonish one another by singing. And I don't know that literally he means we should always sing. But it, I think it is a good exercise to ask yourself this. When I go to teach or admonish someone, could I do it in song? I mean, could I sing it to them, or would that just be completely, completely out of place? Because there is a certain tone and warmth and joy to song. And, and if you think of the rebuke that you're going to give, and if that you know, doesn't quite fit that feel, then maybe you're not in the right place. And that's what he says. He says, because you're singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. If your teaching and admonishing of others isn't coming from a place of gratitude, dwelling in the gospel of Christ richly, it's not going to be peace-inducing. It's going to be stirring up trouble instead. think when we're grateful people, then even our admonitions become songs. When we're grateful people, then even our corrections become beautiful. They become loving. They become building. They become uplifting. Rather than becoming angry shouts. Rather than becoming simply harsh criticisms. I think there's something really, really cool about that. I think there's a lot to on. I think we could, we could spend a lot of time chewing on what it means to teach and admonish with all wisdom through songs and hymns and spiritual songs. I think that's a really powerful question. But I think the heart of it here is that idea of gratitude and joy and love and uplift. Paul says, every authority I have, I use for the building up and never for the tearing down of the body. He wants to, he is ruled by the peace of Christ. By the same Christ that was willing to die on the cross to bring us that's how Paul sees his job and his authority and his position. He says, whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then what does he say? Giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the flow that comes through here. Is that whatever you do, do it to the Lord. And if you can't do it with gratitude, you're not doing it to the Lord. Is that simple? Whatever you speak, whatever you do, however you engage. You know, again, we, we put we put everything, we really believe and understand that that out the discipleship occurs in this many to many pattern of people sharing the Spirit of God in them with each other. That God has gifted us a slice of His grace. Something that He's given us with building up with people around us. And as we share that with other people in our groups, then, then it is the message of Christ richly welling our community. And that should be done in a manner of gratitude. So one of the ways, so, so one of the things is that's why we are here tonight. So as we've talked about several times, our focus groups, that's the heart of church. And for a long time, we did discuss the possibility of not doing a Sunday service at all, only because it's very hard to get the message across that groups are really church. People still tend to want to, want to put the term for the course. We did such a good job in emphasizing our groups that, that I don't feel we've, we've caused that error by having a Sunday service. And we did see that one thing you can do in a Sunday service that is not impossible but harder to do in every group is worship, is to, is to sing. Um, it's nice to have leaders, and it's nice to have other people around. Now, this is the size of most of our small groups, so it's not necessarily more people, but having the instrumentation, having the people dedicated to it, it's nice, it's helpful. And so that's one reason we do what we do. And that's also a reason we do communion. Why do we com do communion regularly? Because we are supposed to let the message of Christ dwell in its ritual. And if we don't take the time to remind each other, as Paul says, um, and by the way, if you came in and did not get those communion elements back there, Charlie, you can either. Um, but if, if we, as Paul says, he says, I pass on to you what was first passed on to me. That Jesus, when he broke the bread, he said, take this and eat this and think of this as my body which is broken for you. And when he took the juice or the wine, he said, take this and drink this as my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And whenever you take this and drink this, do it with the recognition and the remembrance of how much I have loved you. You do hear, I hope, the difference between do it with the guilt of how much pain I suffered for you and saying, do it with the remembrance of how much I've loved you. That's why we take communion. Not to feel guilty about what Jesus did. Because the really important message of the gospel is that you didn't make Jesus do anything. really important message of the gospel is that Jesus chose to do it because that's who he is. Because he's that kind of God. Because he loves you. Because he did it for you before you asked for it. He did it for you when you were still sinners. He did it for you when you were still powerless. These are things Paul has reminded us of in Colossians. And so now he says, develop that heart of gratitude. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com, and I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.